questions and answers today on Bible Study Hello, everybody, and welcome once again to BibleStudyPodcast.org. Today is Saturday, May the 10th, and I'm your host, Toby Logsdon. Of course, this is a special Q&A podcast that we're doing this week because Wednesday I had my logic final and uh, did not have five hours to do, uh, to do the podcast, and that's about how much time it takes to do a podcast between doing the research, uh, writing it out, you know, and everything, recording it, editing it, all that stuff. It takes about five hours, so I didn't have that much time to spare on Wednesday because I was seriously stressed about this logic final. I took logic in undergrad, and man, let me just tell you, taking it in seminary was like five times harder. It, this was a really tough class, but uh, I think I did pretty well in the final. There were a couple questions where I think I was maybe a little bit iffy, but uh, out of 60 or 70 questions, missing a couple is acceptable in my book. Anyway, I want to welcome Christina. She's here with us today as my designated reader once again. How come you always do the silly intros when I'm on the show? Silly intro? What do you mean? I didn't catch the silly intro, but uh, there are several things that fly right over my head, so this could very well just be one of them. Uh, One final word to you guys before we get started here. Uh, Two, actually. Two final words for you guys before we get started here. Uh, first of all, I'm not sure why Justin didn't uh, post yesterday, but uh, hopefully everything's okay with him. I didn't see him at the Southern Evangelical Seminary graduation today, but I'm assuming that uh, that he's out of town, possibly, or for some reason couldn't record it. The second thing I want to ask you guys is, I'm looking for Wednesday topics, and I've got several that I'm actually considering, and I want your feedback on this. Now, one of the topics that I've been thinking about is doing a study on fallacies, where every week we cover two or three fallacies. You guys know that I believe in thinking properly, and part of being able to think properly is knowing how to think improperly. So, being able to recognize fallacies is definitely important. I was also thinking maybe we could do a study on whether uh, the traditional view of hell as eternal and conscious torment is morally God's best option for what to do with the lost. But uh, there are a few topics that I've kind of been tossing back and forth, so let me know what you guys think. If there's something that you guys want to study, let me know, and uh, maybe we can go into that. But anyway, without any further ado, let's go ahead and get started with our first question. Our first question today comes from Carrie. Carrie writes, Hello there. I have a question for your question and answer session. I know Hank Hanegraaff is against Joyce Meyer, but I never really got why. So I emailed his association, and the response I got back was, She is a word of faith teacher, and that is against the Christian faith. Now my questions are, What does it mean to be a word of faith teacher? Is it bad? And is Joyce Meyer a word of faith teacher? Thank you for any help that you can give. Well, this is actually a really great question that you sent in, Carrie, and I'm glad that you have brought this question to me. This is something we haven't discussed before. Um, actually, within this question, we've got a few questions to address within this one question. So let's start with uh, some of the basics. First of all, what does it mean to be a Word of Faith teacher? Uh, well, simply put, a Word of Faith teacher is a person who teaches Word of Faith doctrine or is part of the Word of Faith movement. So the real question boils down to what the 
the Word of Faith movement is? Well, the Word of Faith movement is characterized or identified by the teaching of self-empowerment, uh, God being the puppet of mankind, and an emphasis is placed on God's kingdom ultimately being realized in our lives now uh, rather than in heaven. So where did the Word of Faith movement come from? Well, actually, uh, they were around not long after Jesus and were known at the time as the Gnostics, which uh, were characterized by minimizing God and focusing instead on worshiping things like the self, the intellect, materialism, and, and so on and so forth. So clearly, uh, Word of Faith is dangerous. The, the Gnostic uh, message. The Gnostic philosophy was dangerous. But the Word of Faith movement is dangerous because they claim to be Christian, but they teach the glorification of the self rather than the glorification of God. And I'd say far more than half of the so-called Christian evangelists on television are part of this Word of Faith movement. And there's a particular channel, you know which one I'm talking about, where almost everybody on there is Word of Faith. But anyway, if you remember a couple weeks ago in our Romans lesson, I told you about a church that my family and I had visited in which the pastor was trying to encourage his congregation to give above and beyond their typical tithe because the church was, was hoping to add some features to their land, such as baseball fields. And toward the end of the service, I told you guys that he said something like, well, you might say, well, why should I give more? Isn't God going to do what God is going to do? And I say to you, no, God can't do what he wants to do unless we enable him. And yeah, Christina, like she just, I, I felt her tense up and I tensed up. That was crazy. I mean, that is essentially word of faith, pseudo theology. And I call it pseudo theology because it's not scripturally based at all. The core of the sermon at this church was that we give so that God can give back to us. That is word of faith, pseudo theology. There's absolutely no scriptural basis for that. Um, Benny Hinn, for example, he's a, he's a well-known, recognizable Word of Faith teacher. In his book titled The Anointing, he writes, and I quote, The anointing is dependent upon my words. God will not move unless I say it. Why? Because he has made us co-workers with him. He set things up that way. What? Did he just say that God will not move unless he, Benny Hinn, says for God to move? Man, uh, you know, that's obviously not only some very, uh, very seriously flawed theology, but I would argue that that's so contrary and so opposite that, that any, uh, of anything that's taught in Scripture that it may actually be satanic. Um, so is it bad to be a Word of Faith teacher? Well, <laughs> I, I'm not trying to be um, trying to get smart here or anything, but you know they typically teach their congregation that they'll be able to manipulate God and receive God's blessings by, as they call it, uh, planting a seed of faith and pledging to their ministry in accordance with um, with what they wish to get in return from God. So they'll say that if you want to reap big, you have to sow big. So go ahead and make your checks out to my ministry and add a couple zeros there at the end of that love gift because I know you want to reap big. That's what a Word of Faith teacher will tell you. Uh, this is not the biblical principle of reaping what you sow. The biblical principle of reaping what you sow pertains to sin and offending God. It has nothing to do with manipulating God's blessings upon you. And as a result, uh, you know, you're asking whether or not it's good to be a, a Word of Faith teacher or if it's bad to be a Word of Faith teacher. Well, as a result of, of their, uh, you know, telling people to sow big, a Word of Faith teacher makes a pretty good living. They, they get a pretty fat check. So you could say that it's good to be a Word of Faith teacher in that sense. 
But then they have to stand before God, where they'll come to the realization that they were never really manipulating God at all, and that is when they'll finally get the biblical concept of reaping what you sow. So, anyway, back to Joyce Meyer. Is Joyce Meyer word of faith? Well, Yes, uh, she is, as a matter of fact. She came under huge scrutiny a few years ago from people like Hank Hanegraaff after saying, I'm going to tell you something, folks. I didn't stop sinning until I finally got it through my thick head that I wasn't a sinner anymore. Well, I, I wonder how she reconciles that with First John uh, chapter 1, verses 8, and, uh, 8 through 10, which tells us that if we say that we're without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. See, the problem is, if we're not sinners, we don't need a Savior. Well, anyway, she also taught that, quote, pain is a spirit. When it gets on your body, tell it to leave, uh, end quote. Well, if only... It could be that easy, right? She also did an audio series called Is Your Mouth Saved? in which it was advertised that this series would, uh, quote, help you take inventory of what you've been saying and begin speaking faith-filled words that will bring to pass God's good plan for your life, end quote. In a 2004 series that she did called What Does Your Future Hold? She taught that, quote, sowing and reaping is a spiritual law. Sow generously and you will reap generously. So, in other words, <laughs> she's teaching that we can manipulate God by sowing generously. And last but not least, she accepts the Jehovah's Witness interpretation of Luke twenty three forty three, where Jesus says to the thief on the cross beside him, you know, who, who had asked Jesus for forgiveness, Jesus says to him, truly I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. And of course, the Jehovah's Witness interpretation of this verse places the comma after the word today. Uh, while the Christian interpretation of this passage is that the comma goes before the word today. So according to Joyce Meyer, she says, quote, We have punctuated it, and in this particular scripture it was punctuated wrong. They put it in there, uh, I say to you, comma, today you shall be in paradise with me, making it appear that the minute Jesus died on the cross, he went straight to paradise. No, 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 he did not. The way it should read is, I say unto you today, comma, I'm telling you today, today I'm telling you that you are going to be in paradise with me. But he didn't say, you're going to be there today. He said, I'm telling you this today, end quote. That's what Joyce Meyer said. That's what the Jehovah's Witnesses say. And that's what you get when you get a Word of Faith teacher who doesn't know how to read the Bible. And that's from her study called From the Cross to the Throne. Now, there have been some rumors that Joyce Meyer has turned away from the Word of Faith movement to some degree, but I can't find any substantial proof of that anywhere. I have, you know, searched up and down the internet. Uh, I've, I've read recent quotes from her. It doesn't look like she has turned away from it one iota. I would certainly say that she has taught some very dangerous things, and for that reason, uh, I would encourage people not to listen to her teachings, and if you're going to listen, listen to her with a grain of salt. But uh, anyway, that's my take on Joyce Meyer. Thank you, Carrie, for sending in the question. Christina, what's our next question? Our next question comes from Will. Will writes, Is hell currently occupied? I have heard people pray and cast out demons and send them back to the pit of hell. That just doesn't make sense to me. Okay. Thank you, Christina. Uh, Will, that's a really good question. I actually just wrote a 23-page paper on hell for my Problem of Evil class. And so this uh, this question is actually going to allow me to base my response on some of the things I've been studying recently. So thank you for that. Um, 
Well, hell certainly isn't an enjoyable topic to write about. Uh, let me just tell you that much, that's for sure. But anyway, to answer this question, I need to start by making a distinction when we're talking about hell between Gehenna and Hades. Gehenna and Hades both get translated as hell, which makes it pretty difficult to understand the differences between the two without taking a look at the Greek, where the distinction is maybe a little bit more clearly revealed in scripture. Well, Gehenna is the same as the lake of fire. Anytime uh, you see the word hell translated and it has something to do with uh, fire or flames or, or anything like that, it's probably Gehenna that uh, was translated as hell there. And it's the place that, uh, that Hades will be thrown after the second death that John writes about in Revelation chapter 20 verses 14 and 15. So it's the place that will actually contain Hades, which is going to be thrown into the lake of fire. Well, the word Gehenna came from a valley. It's named after a valley south of Jerusalem where uh, where they would put filth, you know, garbage and dead animals and, and things like that. And they'd put them there and they'd burn them in this fire that was, you know, almost constantly burning. And Jesus saw this and he likened the lake of fire to this, this valley, Gehenna, which is fitting since Hades is ultimately going to be thrown into Gehenna. So for now, when an unsaved person dies, they go to Hades, which is a disembodied, in other words, it's a separation of the of the soul and the body. Uh, it's So it's a disembodied conscious state of torment. People there are aware of where they are, uh, just like in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 30. So you might say, uh, you might say that it's a jail cell of sorts, where the lost are awaiting their trial at the judgment of the great white throne. So, uh, so are demons currently in Hades? That's kind of what your your question is asking. Well, Second Peter chapter two verse four indicates that uh, there are um, some there. And they are awaiting judgment. But we know from the book of Job that at least Satan isn't there. Rather, he roams the earth. Uh, further, we should note that we don't have the authority to cast demons into hell. Even the archangel Michael in Jude uh, chapter 1, or it's only one chapter, but uh, in verse 8 of Jude, he tells us when he disputed with the devil, uh, Michael the archangel that is, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a race judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So only God has the authority to cast demons into the pits of hell. And, um, you know, there are some there, but not all of them, obviously. So uh, they will be thrown there when Hades is thrown into the lake of fire. But right now, uh, I'd say that it's kind of a mix. Some of them are awaiting their judgment in these sort of jail cells, you might say, and some of them are on the earth. So I hope this answers your question well. I know that uh, this is a really deep topic, and I could go all kinds of places with this, but I'm trying to answer just your question specifically here. And if this doesn't answer your question, go ahead and email me uh, if you need clarification. My email is, of course, cleanslate.ministries at hotmail.com. But thank you for the question, Will. God bless you. Christina, what's our next question? Okay, our next question comes from Isa. Isa writes, Regarding homosexuality, is there room to believe that an individual can be altered in their thinking in utero? Specifically taking into account all the hormones, medications, pesticides, etc. that we ingest, what do you think of their arguments that they've always known from the time they were pre-kindergarten, for example? Is it logical to explain that it's always pure enemy involvement? Could not the family environment have played a part? 
Well, thank you, Issa, for your question. You actually bring up an issue that uh, we didn't talk about in our study on homosexuality. So as always, thank you, Issa, for the question. This was something that probably should have been covered. So it certainly is good a time as any to answer this question. Uh, Well, first of all, there's plenty of good reasons to believe that several things about a person can indeed be altered in utero. You know, a mother who does drugs or who ingests alcohol while she's pregnant increases the probability that her child will either have disabilities or, or maybe deformities even, and the likelihood of her child using drugs or developing an addiction to alcohol will increase. So we know this empirically to be true. We, you know, we, we have study after study that verifies this. So is it pure enemy involvement? That was one option that you uh, that you gave. Well, if you're asking whether homosexuality can be attributed to the work of demonic entities or um, influence, I would say that it's certainly possible, but it's not necessarily the case in every instance. Uh, I think you, you really hit the nail on the head by pinpointing the family. You know, a healthy family situation is, of course, ideal, but studies have demonstrated that girls, uh, for example, who have a strained relationship with their mother are more likely to experiment with homosexuality, as will boys who have a strained relationship with their father. A child needs a healthy relationship with both their mother and their father. The family and the upbringing of a child is definitely important and can be a, a huge, significant influence and the way a person, you know, turns out. As for the argument that a homosexual will give, saying that they always knew, well, that's actually an argument that we received in a recent post from a homosexual on BibleStudyPodcast.org. So let's talk about what he said. He claimed that he's known since first grade that he is gay, that he's a homosexual. And, and here's how he responded to that. First of all, first graders aren't even thinking about sex or sexuality unless there is something going on at home that's bringing sexuality to the forefront of their minds. If a first grader knows anything at all about sexuality, it's because something has been made uh, sexually known to them. They don't discover it on their own at an age uh, that early. Secondly, children who are sexually um, you know, molested are approximately seven times more likely to become a practicing homosexual in their lifetime. Seven times more likely. So for a child to know anything about sexuality, and especially to think that they're a homosexual, you know, that tells me that there is something seriously wrong going on at home. And finally, you know, let me just share a a personal story with you from uh, when I was in elementary school. Well, I was a troublemaker. Believe it or not, I was this troublemaker. And I thought that I was destined to be a criminal, in fact. And because I thought I was destined to be a criminal... I used to sleep on the floor of my bedroom with no sheets and no pillow from time to time. And why did I do that? Well, I was doing that because I was getting myself used to the conditions that I might face in prison someday when I would grow up. Well, you know, obviously I'm not a criminal, but at the same time, obviously I was mistaken about my identity and, you know, who I was as well. So the idea that a person has known since first grade that they were a homosexual is either complete nonsense, it's a lie, or it indicates that the child has experienced some type of sexual trauma, whether it's been inflicted on them or whether they've maybe stumbled across some pornography. But uh, a normal 
first grader uh, has no idea um, about what sexuality even is. So anyway, thank you so much for the question, Isa. God bless you. I hope this answers your question. And if you need any clarification, as always, please do email me. God bless you. Thank you for the question. Christina, what is our last question of the day? And our last question comes from Lexi. Lexi writes, First, a couple months ago, I was reading through the Gospels, and like six or seven times after Jesus did a miracle, he told his disciples not to tell anyone what they saw. I asked someone about it once, but he kind of got off on another subject. It's just so unnerving because I have gone back and reread over them, but I still can't figure out why Jesus would tell them that. Didn't Jesus want people to see and believe his miracles? I mean, wasn't that the point of doing miracles in the first place? You know, I I really love getting questions that are things that I actually used to wonder. Uh, God bless you, uh, Lexi. Thank you. That's a great question. And and like I said, it's one that used to cause me a little bit of confusion as well. So everybody who's listening, turn with me in your Bibles to the first chapter of Mark. And while you're getting there, let me just say that the purpose of miracles was to validate the message that Jesus was teaching or, or the, the message of whoever was performing the miracle, whether it was Moses or Elijah or, you know, whoever it was. The purpose was to validate the message with miracles. Jesus never did a miracle just to show off or to draw attention to himself. Rather, the purpose of miracles was, in essence, to say, hey, you know, if this doesn't prove that I have the authority to be saying this to you, then nothing can prove that I have the authority to be saying this to you. So uh, now that you're in Mark chapter 1, look at verses, uh, let's start with verse 34, where we read, And he healed many who were ill with various diseases, of course, this is speaking of Jesus, and cast out many demons. And he was not permitting the demons to speak, because they knew who he was. In the early morning, while it was dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went away to a secluded place, and was praying there. Simon and his companions companions searched for him. They found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. He said to them, let us go somewhere else to the towns nearby so that I may preach there also. For that is what I came for. Well, let's go ahead and stop there for a second. That's uh, through verse 38. Let's go ahead and stop there. Uh, he had been in the district surrounding Galilee at the home of Simon Peter and Andrew. So Jesus heals their mother of a fever and you know word apparently spreads all of a sudden night comes and and the word is out people are coming in droves to uh to Simon Peter's and Andrew's house to be healed and Jesus uh has compassion and he obliges them all but before the sun comes up Jesus slips away to be alone and to pray so Simon Peter and some others come and find Jesus and tell him everyone is looking for you. And Jesus' response to this is kind of interesting. Instead of saying, okay, well, let's go on back and, and you know, do what we got to do. He says, let's go somewhere else so that I may preach there also, for that is what I came here for. He wants to preach there also, somewhere else, for that is what I came here for. So, um, Anyway, we also want to note that uh, the demons were being silenced because they knew who he was. So, uh, anyway, then we pick it up again in verse 39, reading, And he went into their synagogues throughout all Galilee, preaching and casting out the demons. Well, notice that Jesus isn't mentioned as healing here. Now he's just preaching and casting out the demons. Well, the demons, remember, knew who he was. So what's Jesus doing? He's exhibiting his authority over 
the demons. But then we read in verse 40, starting with, uh, with verse 40. And a leper came to Jesus, beseeching him and falling on his knees before him and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. And moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed and he sternly warned him, that is Jesus sternly warned the leper, and immediately sent him away. And he said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas. And they were coming to him from everywhere. And let's go ahead and end there. That's the end of uh, the first chapter. Well, the problem was, obviously, that if this man were to tell everyone about how Jesus had performed this miracle, fewer people would hear the message, the preaching that would save them from condemnation. And of course, that would be the gospel message. Jesus didn't want people to focus on his miracles. He came to preach a message of salvation through his atoning sacrifice. So if the miracles got in the way of the message being heard, then Jesus wasn't doing what he came to do. He came to preach. The miracles brought temporary satisfaction, but the message brought eternal salvation. Well, the greater good here is in eternal salvation and the miracles often tended to distract people from the message and that's why Jesus would sometimes tell people not to say anything about the miracles that they had experienced and it was also the reason that Jesus sometimes just outright refused to do miracles he didn't want to be just a public spectacle he wanted people to hear his preaching and if they weren't going to hear his preaching and they were just going to see his miracles then it was going to be none of the above so anyway i hope that answers your question uh lexi god bless you we're going to answer your second question this coming wednesday if that's okay with you and uh anyway i hope that answers your question email me for clarification if you need and let me know uh if that doesn't make any sense to you so anyway god bless you guys thank you so much for listening today and christina again thank you so much for being my designated reader uh, i will see you guys monday for our romans lesson on biblestudypodcast.org keep growing closer to Jesus. This lesson has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcasts.org, a paraministry of Clean Slate Evangelical Ministries, which is a nonprofit listener-supported ministry based in Monroe, North Carolina. While our desire is that your primary giving be done with your local church, if the Lord is leading you to support our ministry, we do depend on your support to keep our ministry going and growing. If you feel the Lord calling you to support our ministry, you can go to BibleStudyPodcasts.org org and click on support on the right hand side you can make a tax deductible donation from there by doing so you'll be helping us to reach multitudes of people each and every month from around the world who just like yourself desire to find answers and meaning in scripture we thank you for listening today and we pray that the lord blesses you and draws you closer to him keep growing closer to jesus